0: If you turn on the TV these days, one cannot help but feel that trouble just seems to come in successive waves. Today, we seem to be living in an era where the latest economic shockwave only just ends when some environmental crisis hits us between the eyes, and while we're coming to terms with that, there's always some political problem impacting upon our daily lives, it seems. It's enough to make people feel that maybe we're living in some kind of age of chaos and Things are worse now than they've ever been. Ironically enough, however, that feeling was probably close to what the residents of London felt between the years 1086 and 1088. Two years. Two years where things were damn right bloody awful, and London was trying its absolute best to cope. The issues facing the city were a mixture of local problems, compounded by national political problems, mixing with global environmental issues, and that you look at the headlines for what London has faced in those two years, you can't help but feel a pang of empathy for those poor sods. A pandemic, a cost-of-living crisis, a change in political leadership, natural and man-made disaster, political instability. This couple of years seem to have it all. Hi, my name is and This is The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city as a single linear tale. You're free to drop in and listen to individual episodes as each one stands alone, or if you want, you can listen along to the epic saga of The Story of the City. I try to keep the idea of telling a narrative tale and rattle along as fast as I can, In what I hope is an entertaining manner, but I also try to make it as historically accurate as my research can possibly make it so. And on this show, I ain't afraid to get into the archaeological, documentary and physical evidence to get to a heart of an issue. This chapter is dedicated to a couple of years that, I think, denote the start of a dark age of London, where the residents just had to cope with some just awful successive news So get comfy and welcome to Chapter Fifty Three Four Horsemen. So, to understand what was to happen after ten eighty six onwards. I need to go back and talk briefly about 1085. I know I I covered some of this year a couple of chapters ago, but crucially I left out a couple of big salient details which will become important for setting the tone of things as we go along. So we're going to have to just leave London. Not far, we just take a boat, sail down the River Thames, go past the Isle of Sheppey and go past Maidstone and eventually you're going to find yourself in the North Sea and just keep on going and eventually you'll find yourself in Flanders. And over in Flanders at this time was the then Earl of Flanders, Robert, and he was a local European bad boy. Robert's older brother had been a man called Baldwin the Sixth, of Flanders, who inherited his title after their father. Unimaginatively called Baldwin V, had died way back in 1067. Robert and Baldwin were supposedly close to King William the Conqueror of England, because, well, William the Conqueror had married their baby sister Matilda. So, very long and convoluted story short, Baldwin the Sixth is dying, and he asks his baby brother Robert to be regent and run the place in the name of his young son. Robert says, "Sure, bro." And then Baldwin dies, and then Robert goes all Disney villain and cackles, "Ha ha! I lied!" And he makes himself the Earl of Flanders. William the Conqueror considers this a bit of a dick move, and he says so. And this gives Robert the hump, and he starts giving shelter to William's enemies, including Edgar Itheling, the previous king to England. But then Robert decides to really mess with William. And, well, I'm just going to quote what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that he did. Quote, Canute, King of Denmark, son of King Sven, was coming hitherward, and he was resolved to win this land with the assistance of Robert, Earl of Flanders. And, And no, we're not experiencing time travel here. This is not. King Canute, the son of King Sven's Forkbeard, suddenly doing a Doctor Who and returning to reconquer England years after he's dead. This was King Canute the Fourth of Denmark, son of King Sven Ethrissen, who was coming to claim England as his granduncle Canute had been that Canute, and so he figured he had a right to it. And so did others. What others? Well, King Olaf the Third of Norway, for one thing, so now it's not just a massive Danish fleet turning up, it's Looking like a massive Danish and Norwegian operation. And also supporting him, as we said, Robert of Flanders. And he was supporting him because he'd married his daughter to King Canute IV. And this possible invasion of 1085 was taken very seriously by William the Conqueror. Quote When William, King of England, who was then resident in Normandy, understood this, he went into England with so large an army of horse and foot from France and Brittany as never before sought this land, so that men wondered how this land could feed all that force. But the king left the army to shift for themselves through all this land amongst his subjects, who fed them each according to his quota of land. Men suffered much distress this year and the king caused the land to be laid waste about the seacoast, that if his foes came up, they may not have anything on which they could very readily seize. But when the king understood of a truth that his foes were impeded, and could not further their expedition, then he let some of the army go to their own land, but some he held in this land over the winter." Unquote. Now, for the record, the Danish king did gather a massive fleet, He had the boats constructed and the army was ready. The fleet was about to invade, but he couldn't sail as he was worried that if he did, the Holy Roman Emperor would launch an invasion of his territory if he went to England. And After a summer of waiting around and everybody playing chicken, his men elected his baby brother Olaf to ask him to allow them, you know, maybe they could go home to their fields and the harvest the IV apparently got paranoid, had his brother arrested and sent him for safekeeping to Flanders, but eventually he had to allow his men return to their fields for the harvest. And then, during the winter, there was a rebellion. A mob killed him and his bodyguards in a church. He eventually became a saint. His brother Olaf became king of Denmark, and the Great Invasion of England of 1085 never happened. However, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle described... King William had inflicted a huge armed force upon England to defend it. There was simply not enough food to go round because of them being billeted at the English people's expense, and the description of the coastal regions, the east coast of England being laid waste, really doesn't bode well. Meanwhile, it was that winter, while all this is going on, King William ordered the Doomsday Survey to be conducted, as you do. So. As the Doomsday Survey was being conducted everywhere except Winchester, Durham and London, London itself was probably thinking quite a lot about its bishop. As I've said previously, the Bishop of London was basically the only high-ranking London-specific title around. And recent events had seriously elevated the bishopric's status. If you can remember a couple of chapters ago, I went on about the impact of Archbishop Lanfranc of Canterbury. Well, in 1075, Lanfranc had overseen the Council of London, which was basically a huge gathering of the Norman-dominated bishops of England at St Paul's Cathedral. And here they had agreed to the rules of the English Church going forward, in light of some new church policy being decided back in Rome. And I'm mentioning all of this because it was during the Council of London that a new status symbol was deferred upon the Bishopric of London. It was decided at the council that henceforth the Archbishop of York ought to sit at the right hand of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Bishop of London to be sat directly on his left, and then the Bishop of Winchester would sit next to the Archbishop of York. However, if the Archbishop of York was away, then the Bishop of London should sit at the right of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Bishop of Winchester to his left. And yes, this sounds like a game of musical chairs played by men in dresses, but given the political importance of the Bishops of England, This was all about status and gravitas. London was basically being recognised as the third most important bishopric in England after Canterbury and York. This mattered. And the fact that it was happening and that and a lot of other things were happening in St. Paul's also reinforces this diocese's importance. Over the last few chapters, when I'm talking about anything ecclesiastical, it's all been about the Abbey of St. Peter's, Westminster. So here St. Paul's is returning to its position as somewhere really important ecclesiastically. Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning all of this was, soon after the Council of London, Bishop William, the Norman Bishop of London, who'd been in charge of St. Paul since Edward the Confessor's time, and had been in position all through the Norman invasions, finally died. And he was replaced by another Norman called Hugh de Oroville, who I think was a Benedictine monk, and certainly he'd been born in a small Normandy village of Orville, and he held the post without incident until about 1085 or so. Oh, and by the way, I think it's 1085. I've got to mention, it's an annoying thing that at the time, the church started its year on April the 1st, Lady Day which meant that while Bishop Hugh died in 1084 by the ecclesiastical calendar, we think that meant he died in January 1085 by our normal calendar. And anyway, as the winter of 1085 moved into 1086, and we know it was a bad one weather-wise, a new bishop was consecrated for London. A man called Bishop Maurice. Now, Maurice was a high-profile appointment for the See of London. No, really, he was. See, Maurice had originally been the Archdeacon of the Abbey of Le Mans, where he had known Lanfranc back in the day. And in 1078, he had been appointed to the position of the Lord Chancellor of England. So he wasn't a nobody. And, you know, you can't help but feel... That having a man with such a high secular position in England, becoming Bishop of London was in keeping with the gravitas the Bishop Frick had just been given. Maurice sat to the left of Archbishop Lanfranc. Maurice was now in his post as Bishop of London as well as Chancellor of England when King William held his Whitsun Court at his hall in Westminster where he, quote, dubbed his son Henry a knight there, unquote. Young Prince Henry was about 18 years old at this point. The only one of William's nine children who had actually been born in England. That's because his mother, Queen Matilda, the four-foot-something powerhouse, had given birth to him soon after her coronation in Westminster. The knighting ritual itself was, by all accounts, a fairly simple affair, but it was significant that it took place in Westminster. We know that after all of this... The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that the king returned to Normandy for the last time. Yet as winter fell upon London in 1086, quote, And the same year there was a very heavy season, and a swinkful and sorrowful year in England, in moraine of cattle, and corn and fruits were at a stand, and so much untowardness in the weather as a man may not easily think. So tremendous was the thunder and lightning that it killed many men, and it continually grew worse and worse with men. May God Almighty better it whenever it be his will. Unquote. 1086 it was a bloody awful year for the weather. But remember, we could be referring to 1087, as remember, the ecclesiastical year started in April. But anyway, you look at it, as we enter 1087 by our calendar, conditions in England were pretty bad. I mean, think about what's just been described. A huge army of soldiers from Normandy and Brittany had been billeted in England and had been fed at local residents' expense. This army had then been employed to enact a scorched-earth policy along the east coast of England to prevent a possible Danish invasion from having any supplies they could raid. This had been followed by a moraine of cattle, which suggests an epidemic of some kind, which devastated the farm animals of England, and based on the Doomsday Book, that probably means some kind of swine flu. And there had been spectacularly bad weather, an untowardness, as storms had actually killed, quote, many men, unquote. And this weather seemed to be continuing. So we've got a lack of food, muddy, unsanitary conditions, especially in crowded towns. These were breeding conditions for something really bad. You don't need to be a genius to see what was coming. And the records for 1087 describe what followed... With that year being witness to, quote, a very heavy and pestilent season in this land. Such a sickness came on them that full nigh every other man was in the worst disorder, that is, in the diarrhoea, and that so dreadfully that many men died in this disorder, unquote. Some kind of enteric fever had erupted. And there's no way somewhere as crowded as London, with around 10,000 inhabitants, could not have been affected. What we have here sounds like an epidemic of typhoid. The victims would have started to show a fever that starts low and then increases dramatically. They have headaches, chills, weakness and fatigue, muscle aches, stomach pain, a rash, a cough, profuse sweating, and eventually possibly an explosive diarrhoea, if not painful constipation. Typhoid was and is a nasty little infection. And in London's unsanitary streets, it would have spread like wildfire, leaping from house to house, from resident to resident. As it said in that quote, full night, every other man, one in two, was catching it. Now, this would not have been some great mortality like we're going to see in later epidemics like the plague. It wasn't that bad. But it would have been a thoroughly miserable few months for London. People were just infecting each other. They were weakened and fever hit. The sheer stench of it. London became what I can only imagine was a crowded, stinking, muddy and utterly miserable place to be in. And then on top of this... The records say, quote, "'Afterwards came, through the badness of the weather, as we before mentioned, "'so great a famine all over England "'that many hundreds of men died a miserable death through hunger. "'Alas, how wretched and how rueful a time was there!'' unquote. So yes, the impact of that army and everything they did, plus the awful weather conditions plus an animal epidemic had caused there to be a famine. Possibly the harshest famine seen since Williams scorched earth policies back up north in the late 1060s. Men, women and above all children would have been weakened by lack of food and therefore were vulnerable to having weakened immune systems when the typhoid hit them. Or... Even worse, those trying to recover from the effects of typhoid, a disease which can at times wait until its fever had passed before coming back round for a second impact on your bowels, they'd be trying to get through this without enough food. Is it any wonder the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records, quote, when the poor wretches lay full-nigh driven to death prematurely and afterwards came sharp hunger and dispatched them with all who will not be penetrated with grief at such a season who is so hard-hearted as not to weep at such misfortune Unquote. 1087 was turning into an utterly shitty year for London and then it got worse See, we suspect that after the awful, soggy and wet weather of the early part of the year had passed, what remained of the crops of England got some good news, because we think what followed was a hot summer based on what happened. After all that miserable, crappy, mud-causing weather, England and London baked as the land was dried out. This was kind of good news, you know as what crops were planted, could flourish. And remember, famines lasted until the next harvest. And as London, baking in the sun, its disease-riddled and hungry residents could have been hoping that maybe the price of food would fall and people would have full bellies again. And at that exact moment, to quote the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle again, quote, also, in the same year, before harvest, The Holy Minster of St. Paul, the Episcopal See in London, was completely burned with many other Minsters, and the greatest part and the richest of the whole city, unquote. Yep, that's right. London was suddenly hit by another city-wide fire, less than a decade after the last one. We know nothing about this one. No new laws were passed like the curfew law had been to suggest There was an identifiable cause of it. So, like ten seventy-seven, it could have been caused by an ember catching straw at night, but given the weather, it could have just been a small house fire caused during the daytime. It could have been caused by a fallen candle in St. Paul's, but in these conditions it spread, and London was consumed. The exact wording says, quote, the greatest part and richest of the whole city, unquote. And that combined with St. Paul's going up, for me, that suggests that Westsea probably went up in flame. And most probably the fire reached and could have destroyed the Docklands over in Bishop's Gate. That would make it a huge blaze, bigger than the last one. And this is why, when I was describing the rebuilding of London after the last fire a couple of chapters ago, I kept repeating, you know, some buildings we're not 100% sure if the construction began after 1077 or 1087. Crucial to all of this was the destruction of the Anglo-Saxon Cathedral of St. Paul's. That grand old cathedral had survived several sieges. It had endured much. We know the first ever St. Paul's had reportedly burnt down but we're unsure if that first version was located here, or if that particular wooden church had been constructed over in Lundenwick, the old East Saxon Mercian town. I've read that 300 years later, a stone version of St. Paul's had been destroyed by the Viking attack I covered back in 952, and apparently that version had been rebuilt with the version that existed now, and that was destroyed for sure in 1087. The only thing I know for sure is, as I described back in chapter 30, St. Paul's had its own souk, which was surrounded by a wall, the entire enclosed region referred to as Paulsbury. But I believe this wall was destroyed here in 1087, changing the geography of the city for all time. Luckily for London, at the time this fire took place, its bishop was, as we said, the Chancellor of England, Maurice. And that meant that funds for the rebuild were quickly forthcoming, and in the immediate aftermath, work seemed to begin straight away. So, famine, pestilence, and fire. London was an incredibly crappy place to be. And was that the end of its woes? Alas, not. In fact, the party is just starting, because something else happened, Towards the end of 1087, just to add a particularly crappy icing onto a particularly putrid cake, William the Conqueror died. He was over in Normandy when he died. It appears that during a battle he smashed his testicles against his saddle, which ruptured something internally, and after wailing in agony for a few days, he died in bed. Thus passed the great conqueror. And immediately, there was a succession crisis. I mean, of course there was a succession crisis. Because let's be honest here. Ever since King Edmund the Martyr had been killed, there had been nothing but succession crises in England. King Aethelred Unred had faced the crisis of taking the throne after his older brother Edmund's murder supposedly by his own followers. Forkbeard had then taken his throne via conquest, but when he died, Ethelred had taken his throne back, and when he died, there had been the contested succession between Edmund Ironsides and Canute, which Canute won. And when he died, you had the contested succession of Harold Harefoot and Arthur Canute. And when they died, Edward had usurped Canute's dynasty, and when he died, The throne was usurped by Harold Godwinson, who in turn lost the throne to William. So when William died, of course there was going to be shenanigans. In fact, allow me to repeat something I've said before in this podcast, and I'm probably going to say again. The repeated shenanigans that took place after the rule of the last 11 kings of England or so was to carry on for the next seven or so kings of England. This nation was an inherently Unstable polity. That means, I'm afraid, we have to understand the internal politics of the sons of William the Conqueror. But don't worry. The one advantage of having an all-powerful, centralised dynasty is that for all its viciousness, it was actually less complicated than the kings of the Angleson nation we've just had to deal with. So explaining it should take less time. Basically, William of Normandy, the King of England, did not get on with his oldest son, Robert. Robert. Father and son had differing temperaments, differing characters, and as he matured, William found Robert increasingly just got on his nerves. Robert, for his part, found his father's actions increasingly restrictive, and in time, the two came to blows. It should be noted, father-to-son succession was by this time kind of accepted in England and in France, but it was never a foregone conclusion. And any time a king died... Cousins, nephews, uncles, brothers, all could jostle for the throne, and by jostle, I mean fight. There weren't any set rules for this kind of thing, and in terms of real politics, each contender or candidate or supporter could and did use any means at their disposal, even if at times this included direct warfare. So, King William and Prince Robert had clashed a few times, including crucially in 1079, but Queen Matilda had been the family peacemaker, and it seemed father and son had reconciled. But Matilda's death in 1083 had removed from the dynasty the crucial part of the glue that held the family together, yet somehow father and eldest son had stayed peaceful for a while. However, Robert had rebelled against his father again in 1087, and he'd sought support from the nearby King of France, who was more than willing to help since this Duke William had become King William and he was a power that could rival the King of France's. And this led to renewed conflict between Paris and Rouen, and eventually erupted in fighting on the Norman-French flashpoint, the Sienne Valley. And That July, the Norman forces defeated the French and ...fought their way into the town of Mars... ...where they, being Normans, decided to set it all on fire... ...because, like Normans adored, setting things on fire... ...those little psychotic pyromaniacs. Supposedly, it was when this fire was going on... ...that his horse stumbled during the conflict... ...smashing sensitive parts of his body against the saddle... ...and thus, coupled with the heat of the fire and exhaustion... ...is what did William in. William realised he was going to die... And so he summoned his sons. And only two of the three sons turned up. Not his oldest, Robert, but the next two, William and Henry. Now, what exactly happened next depends on who you're asked. Later, according to Prince William, his father was so worried about his dissolute and useless older son taking over his vast holdings, he decided to give everything to his second son, William. And it was only after some serious peer pressure from the other lords that he basically agreed Robert could be Duke of Normandy, dividing up the king's territory between Robert and William. Robert would get Normandy, William would get England, and the youngest son, Henry, would get a load of gold and told to stand in the corner and shut the hell up. Supposedly, William I knew that William II taking the throne would be seen as a usurpation, Not only did the dying king give his son his sword, scepter and crown, he also gave him a letter to Lanfranc, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which basically said, Dear Lanfranc, quick, make my middle son king. Before William had even died, Prince William was on the road to the coast and hung around until he heard his father had snuffed it before jumping on a ship and sailing over to England. Let's be straight here, the ship that was bringing the news of King William's death also carried his successor. Prince William got to England, made a beeline straight for Winchester, and there he met with Archbishop Lamfrank, who by all accounts went along with the late King William's last will and testament and agreed to support Prince William for the throne. Please note, there is a lot more to this story, and there's a lot of fierce and strong debates about the exact sequence of events, and about William II in general, but that needs some time to explain, so I'll just focus on the overview of events for now, and the nature of this debate in a future chapter. The key to William going to Winchester was actually him seizing the royal treasury located there, like King Harold Harefoot had done decades earlier. He understood the key to ruling England seems to have been control over the treasury, signifying the importance of the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. This was a veritable fortune, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, It was impossible for anyone to describe how much gold and silver was accumulated there, how many costly robes and jewels, as well as many other precious objects, that it is difficult to list, unquote. Secure with his treasure, and with the permission of the Archbishop of Canterbury, William made his way to London, and there he arrived on Thorny Island, just down the river from the recently burned, recently diseased, recently wrecked city of London. On September 26, 1087, William II of England was crowned in the new Westminster, now seeing its fourth coronation, what with Harold Godwinson, William and Matilda already being crowned there, in just over 20 years. This was coronation central... And London now had a new king. And they immediately wondered what this signified. They didn't have long to wait. William II quickly used his vast fortune to give huge sums of money to every single church, abbey and cathedral in the country. Vast amounts of gold and silver to secure prayers for the soul of his dead father. Now, he did some draconian things. For example, he did not release Earl Morcar of Northumbria or Wolfnoth the last surviving brother of Harold Godwinson, probably out of fear of the English rising in rebellion again as they'd done back in the late 1060s and early 1070s. He also did things that seemed to be designed to maintain the peace. You see, there was a worry that Duke Robert may be a tad upset about losing his right to inherit his father's largest estate. And so the new King William sent a conciliatory gesture to Duke Robert. And this is where things get slightly messily personal. You see, we need to talk about Bishop Odo of Bayeux. Odo was William the Conqueror's natural maternal half-brother. William's mother had married after his father died, and he'd grown up close to William in those crazy years that followed when William was a small kid, and around him the whole of Normandy seemed intent on capturing the boy and killing anyone who stood in their way. William had eventually made Odo the Bishop of Bayeux when he was either 14 or 19 at the oldest. Either way, he was just a teenager. And when 1066 rolled around, Odo had sailed with William and is depicted in the Bayeux Tapestry where he's either, depending on the historian you ask, wielding a club and fighting in the front line alongside his half-brother or riding around with a huge club, lifting the morale of the troops to go get stuck into the front line. Either way, after William I took England, Odo was his closest ally. He made him the Earl of Kent. He was granted vast estates. And after William himself, Odo was the largest landowner in England. He'd been so trusted that he was, at times, the regent for William when the king had returned to Normandy, running the whole of the country for him. Things were good, and then they went bad. In In 1076, he was put on trial for three days, accused of defrauding both the king and the Archbishop of Canterbury out of estates and lands. He was found guilty, but aside from returning some properties to both king and church, he remained the big cheese until 1082. And it's clear that in 1082, Odo was up to something. We're just not 100% sure what it was exactly. Many feel Odo was planning on using his vast wealth to fund a military campaign in southern Italy. That region was being run by a bunch of Normans at the time, and it was suspected that he was paying to use Norman forces there to try and topple the then Pope and make himself the pontiff. True, untrue, no one knows, but William seemed to take it seriously and acted swiftly, and he had Odo arrested and imprisoned. His lands were seized, and by the time William II took the throne, Odo had spent the last five years incarcerated. Now, amidst everything else going on, Odo had also been a close advisor to Robert, the new King William's older brother. So, to send an olive branch to Duke Robert, William ordered Bishop Odo released from imprisonment and restored all his lands to him. This was a huge mistake. In 1088, the records say, the country was greatly disturbed and filled with much treachery, as the most powerful Frenchman in the land planned to betray their lord the king and have his brother Robert as king. At the head of this plot was Bishop Odo, The idea that Duke Robert as eldest son should be king wasn't just shared by Duke Robert. A lot of the powers that be in the Norman regime felt the same way. In fact, on paper, William was very much the minority choice, the mainstay of the Norman status quo in England and Normandy, all through their weight behind Robert and Odo. Now I could just spend an hour talking about the principal personalities and the causes and the interpersonal politics of these players. and while it would be fascinating again, it has little to do with London directly. So in summary, there seemed to be a twofold reason behind the objections to William II holding the throne of England. Firstly, there were a bunch of Norman elite who really did think Robert had been hard done by by William taking the throne. Robert was firstborn and heir. Robert should be king. This faction, of course, was led by Duke Robert of Normandy. But driving this was a second cause. For almost all of these nobles, their problem was they owned estates in both England and Normandy, and they all had two separate feudal lords over them. This caused all kinds of issues for them, without getting into the minutiae of taxation and legal concerns. Basically it meant that if William of England and Robert of Normandy both decided to start wars against differing people at the same time, the landowners could then be hit by two demands for cash and men. And added to that, there was the obvious issue of what happens if they go to war with one another. Simplified, it does feel like the powers that be and the Norman elite decided that eventually, someday, they're going to have to pick a side between Duke Robert and King William. And they just decided it was best to do it now, rip that plaster off and get it out of the way. And they picked Robert as their preferred candidate. So, the overwhelming mainstay of nobles who had come over with William the Conqueror sided against William. And they raised their forces and basically... Across England, rebellion and civil war started. William II, however, was many things, but the one thing even the guys who hated him all agreed on, he was one hell of a general and warrior. In fact, it seems that his family nickname had been Longsword, a nickname that had been used by his great-grandfather, and that carried a lot of weight within Norman circles. King Longsword knew how to fight. William II's biggest issue was that nearly all the the large Norman nobles, were siding against him. But he, as king, had an extra layer of defence to use in this crisis. The Shire Reeves of England, the sheriffs. These were royal appointments of king's men, and it appears that across England, the sheriffs of England stood by their new king, and were able to gather and organise forces for him. In fact, all bar three of the Sheriffs of England all stood by King William the Second, And here is where London finds itself right in the heart of this mess. Because one of the three Sheriffs of England, who seemed to be going over to Bishop Odo's side, Geoffrey de Mandeville, Port Reeve of London, Sheriff of Middlesex and Constable of the Tower of London. Yep, the Norman who'd run London for the regime since 1066 was here and now in 1088 siding against the new king. And so, after a year of plague, fire, and famine, London suddenly found itself dragged into the front line of a growing civil war. Why did Demandeville turn? Well, remember, as I said, this rebellion was led by the big landowners of England, the men who had huge estates here and in Normandy. and You may remember that I pointed out that Demandeville was one of the ten biggest landowners in England by now. This was him siding with Odo and the Normandy Ulgard against the second son of William. So, what happened? Well, we're actually not 100% sure. The records of the time tend to focus on the big events, and smaller sideshows tend to get overlooked. But from the later disposition of one of the rebels, the Bishop of Durham, who seemed to be throwing everyone under the bus so as to get himself out of the frame, we think de Mandeville raised forces against King William and that there was fighting in London. Now, the size of it, the scale of it, how many were involved, we do not know. We read that there were uprisings against King William in Dover, in Hastings, and in London. But these failed. And the Bishop of Durham later claimed that he he was the one who, after the fighting in London, had arranged for 12 citizens of London to be made hostages for the King to keep everyone else in line. We also have records of Geoffrey de Mandeville seizing the Tower of London briefly, and basing some forces there, and we know his grandson, Geoffrey de Mandeville II, was involved in fighting over in Essex. Indeed, while again stressing we are very unsure, what appears to have happened was that the new king knew the rebellion was coming. And just before it erupted, he seemingly personally led small strike teams to take out crucial locations of the rebellion before it could really get started. It appears that the Tower of London and London itself was part of these early little lightning campaigns unleashed by William II because the rebellion in London fails and the king held the city secure with most of the population, I think, on the king's side. Indeed, by Easter of 1088, William was secure enough that he could make London his headquarters, and he mobilised his national forces to assemble in or near London, a process that took weeks. But the city was firmly in his camp. His army was drawn from the forces mobilised by the Sheriffs of England, and it seemed to be primarily Englishmen. As the king mobilised his army outside of London, however, Bishop Odo mobilised his forces remarkably nearby, at the town of Rochester. These forces threatened London. The city, after a crappy few years it was having, was now in a proper civil war. But two things happened that helped the king. Firstly, William seems to have ignored all the uh, uprisings and violence that were taking place across the country. He was focused with laser precision on Odo and on Rochester. He marched his army, which probably would have contained a few Londoners, and marched on Rochester, and basically unleashed what was probably the most savage siege of any English castle of this era. It was brutal fighting, and added to this what helped him was Duke Robert never sailed to England to help the rebels who were rebelling for him. There are supposedly a plethora of reasons as to why he didn't sail. And we won't get into that, but this gave William the second time. Time in which he could use his vast treasury and smart diplomacy to win back the nation. And here we see the biggest gap between English mentalities and Norman mentalities. See, while this was a terrible rebellion against the king, these are Normans. Rebelling against those of a higher rank was pretty bad, but it was kind of commonplace. You didn't kill a man who rebelled against you, you got him to surrender and pay you a fortune, then you forgave him. So William used his money and the promise of an amnesty, and guess what? Across England, nobles who had joined the rebellion now slunk back and surrendered. Now for his English followers, they were all like, what do you mean we're letting these guys go? They're traitors, hang them. Apparently, when Odo and Co surrendered to William at Rochester, the king allowed them leave in dignity and peace to the roars and boos of the English army who wanted to see these guys hung in a rope. As it was, Odo was exiled and lost all his lands. Robert's claim to England was beaten off. And William celebrated his victory at the Christmas court at Westminster. So, yeah, a shitty few years were London hoped. Probably prayed to God Almighty himself that maybe, just maybe, things could calm down a little. This dark age had started with famine, plague, fire, and war. All four horsemen of the apocalypse had decided to pay London a visit. And all the city could do was rebuild itself. Again and hope for better times ahead. The signs, however, did not bode well. And I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week for another chapter in the story of London.